0: Present Tense Podcast. Hi, it's Anne Markham Bailey with Present Tense, and this is our last interview in the series The Fight for Alabama's Last Wild Places. In this interview, we hear from Janice Barrett. Who says of herself that she is a lover of forests and all things wild? Janice grew up in rural Lawrence County, Alabama. Going to the mountains is what Janice's family did for outings. The mountains that they went to are the foothills of the Southern Appalachians, the warrior mountains of the Bankhead National Forest, and what was to become in 1975. Sipsy wilderness. Providing their children and themselves with cheap entertainment by following creek beds through sandstone canyons, Janice's parents never suspected that the sweet, pure air they were breathing was setting forest love into their eldest daughter's blood like a mordant. After art school in Memphis and years of living many places, an Appalachian Trail hike brought Janice back to the South and eventually back to Lawrence County. It was becoming a mother, raising her son, and the fierce innate drive to keep him safe in this world that propelled her into environmental activism. Janice says, I believe that when we protect forests, we automatically protect water, air, and every other living thing. As a species, humans have snatched up way more than their share and have done it with a sense of entitlement and disregard to the detriment of the rest of life on this planet and to our own detriment. I consider it my moral obligation to protect the rest of life and saving our forests is my calling. In the early 1990s, Janice began volunteering for the newly formed Bankhead Monitor. That volunteerism grew into her current position at Wild South, where, as outreach coordinator, she organizes and leads volunteer projects in the Sipsi Wilderness and the Bankhead National Forest, is a wilderness ranger in Wild South's Volunteer Wilderness Ranger Program, which she assisted in creating. She activates activists, leads hikes and field trips in the bankhead, and works to sprout a new generation of forest lovers by taking children to our mountains to walk the creeks and breathe that sweet air.
1: Way, way. My relationship with the Bankhead is at least as long as my life. I was born and raised in Lawrence County, and so the Bankhead has always been part of what my family did and where we went. And um, my grandmother's family, the Sandlands, owned land in the Bankhead. In fact, they owned, uh, the he- they owned Hepsy Down at one time when I was still really young. And I remember a big family reunion there when I was about six years old. And then my uh, Hepsy Dam is a tiny little community um, in the Bankhead on the old Cheatham Road, what is now the Highway um, 33 it's about probably about uh, eight or ten miles south of Moulton on Highway 33 and it's just this tiny little area there might have been a, a post office there at one time and um, nobody nobody knows the origin of the name we know that it's Scottish but nobody knows how it got that name and um, so it's just a little place in the bankhead that used to be owned by my grandmother's family. Um, now there's a, whoever owns it now has a greenhouse up there, and they have a one of those big signs on the side of the road with religious sayings on it, usually. But the old log cabin that's there was was in my grandmother's family, and it was moved up there from Landersville. It belonged to my my great aunt and uncle, Cora and Brown Sandlin. What my family did for entertainment, like on days when my dad was off work or on Sundays, would be to just drive up into the forest and park on the side of the road and walk up a creek. And we also spent a lot of time at Brushy Lake. Um, back in the 1930s, Brushy Lake was, Brushy Creek was damned to form Brushy Lake, and then it was developed as a recreation area. So they had, um, the CCC built the area and the dam, and they put in all the picnic tables. Um, For many decades, a sandy beach was maintained there, so it was a swimming area. And the water was black and it was full of leeches, but everybody went there to swim. (laughs) And that's where I learned to swim when I was a child. Um, So that's one of the things my family did and we also went to the Sipsi Recreation Area which is another place that was uh, developed by the CCC back in the 1930s. Um, We would have picnics, we would get up way before daylight and go to Brushy Lake and cook breakfast over an open fire in the summertime. But mostly, we would just walk creeks and just explore in the water and just be out there, just breathing it. It was great. (laughs) It planted, um, it planted love of the forest in me. Planted those seeds, just being out there when I was so young. Just as individual people are different from each other, you know places are different from places, and I think the um, uniqueness of the bankhead and the Sipsi and the warrior mountains in general is um is geologic i think it's I feel that it's based on the this ancient geology of the place the uh the geology determines the flow of water, and the plants that live there, the animals that live there. Um, I feel that it's, I feel, I feel a, a spirituality about the place that I don't necessarily feel in other places. This may be because it's just been a part of my life for so long, but, but I do, I do believe there's something special about it, and it's one of the most biologically diverse places in the world. And it's just, it's, it's, an, it's amazing. And just, it's just the feeling, the feeling of the place. I think that makes it unique. And it smells like iron. It smells like blood. Because when you're in the canyons, you're just like, you're just embraced by canyon walls of sandstone. They're laced with iron and to me that is the smell of the bankhead and the Sipsi. It's that smell it's the smell of, of iron which smells like blood. It's clean but it's not sanitized. <laughs> yes, it's, a, it's just the beauty of a beauty of a place left wild in all of its, for all of our senses. All wildness and all nature is sacred. God lives through it and that that wildness is also part of who we are as humans. It's sacred in the way of nature, pure creation. Creation happening constantly and it's, it's sacred in the ways of culture because humans have been there for at least ten thousand years. And it's been treated as a sacred place for that long by by humans. And I think that also imbues it with another level of sacredness. I think the forests and the wild places are constant recreation, which includes death. A big old mashup of death and life all the time. Death becoming life, life becoming death, over and over. It's limitless and infinite. In the late 1980s I was living in Tennessee near the Tennessee River um, and my place bordered a wildlife refuge and um, so it was a very rural area very very much nature-based my life was then and um, living on the edge of this wildlife refuge My son and I would go walking, um, from the time he was just a tiny infant, him and his stroller, of course, uh, on this wildlife refuge down to the river. It was a a very important place to me. It was a place where I would go on the riverbank. I did a lot of artwork down there. It was a place I would go for solitude, and a very important place to me. So, at this time when my son was about a year old, I noticed that logging trucks were going past my house. And there was cutting going on on the wildlife refuge. And it was very upsetting to me. I didn't understand why they were doing it, but there was a lot of wood coming off of the wildlife refuge. My mother-in-law lived just half mile down the road from me, and I was telling her about it and how upset I was about this and what was going on and she said well you need to write to Al Gore and at that and at that time I didn't even know who Al Gore was and I said said, well who is Al Gore and she said well he's the he's he's the senator he's our senator and he is really concerned about the environment so I wrote a letter to Al Gore telling him about my concerns and what was going on on my of the wildlife refuge there and he actually wrote me back. He wrote a letter back, you know, um, and he told me that he had written, he had contacted the Fish and Wildlife Service who was in charge of managing the the wildlife refuge and asking what was going on and if they could please contact me and explain. I was I was really shocked to even get a letter back. A few days later I was home along with my son, and I knock on the door, and there are two men from the Fish and Wildlife <laughs> set, uh, telling me that Al Gore sent them, and that um, <laughs> they wanted to explain some things to me, and could I get in their uh, car, and um, they would give me a tour of the wildlife refuge. And I thought, okay, and um, then I realized, oh, Okay, here I am with a one-year-old baby and getting into a vehicle with two strange men to go right in the woods. <laughs> and then I reconsidered that, so, and I thought, okay, I'll follow you in my pickup truck. So, um, <laughs> so we went on a tour through the wildlife refuge, and they, they took me to the cutting site. They explained what was being done, and it... It kind of made sense to me, even though I still hated you know, the cutting and what was being taken out. Um, it semi-made sense to me. And I appreciated that they took the time to do that. And I really appreciated that um, Senator Gore took the time to respond to my letter. About this same time, I went home to Alabama for a weekend, my son and I, and this would have been about 1990, um, maybe 1991, and my mother here in Lawrence County um, had saved a little newspaper clipping for me out of the Moulton Advertiser, and it was a little article about Lamar Marshall and what was going on in the Bankhead National Forest? I had never heard of Lamar Marshall, but I was certainly concerned about what was going on in the Bankhead. So I made a point to meet him, and somehow I found out that he was that he was going to be at Jim and Ruth Manasco's Christmas open house for their pottery studio, which was coming up. So I went to there. I went to Jim and uh, Ruth's, and. I introduced myself to Lamar out there on the porch of their studio on uh, the edge of Smith Lake and that's how it began. My experience with the Wildlife Refuge and reaching out to the people in power and actually getting response and results I felt I felt emboldened to move forward from that. I offered my services to Lamar. Even though I was living in Tennessee, you know, 130 miles away, I was still, you know, I was still able to help. At that time, he had just begun publishing the Bankhead Monitor, so I started doing a lot of artwork for the Monitor. Um, Later on, I would come down to Alabama to go to um, meetings with the Forest Service when things were really getting heated up. I would just volunteer it in any way that I could from afar. That's how my um, environmentalism began. It really was um, spurred by motherhood. Because even though I was a lifelong nature lover and forest lover, it was becoming a mother that put fierceness in my heart. It made me passionate about about taking care of the world for my son, who would spend his whole life in it. I think that's true for a lot of women. They become, motherhood brings them into into a place of fierce warriorhood. And that certainly happened for me. So now my son is almost 30 and He's old enough to have his own role in, you know, making the world a better place. But I have very young great nieces and nephews. So my, my fierce motherness extends to that generation, too. Wildness is essentially what we are. We evolved out of wildness. And we still rely on it. Well, many of us do realize this on a daily basis, but I think many people don't realize how reliant their lives are on wildness, even if they live in a city. Because without wildness, without wild water and air and huge tracts of forests and wilderness to create oxygen and to filter water, We couldn't survive as humans. So we are fundamentally dependent on wildness and on wild nature. And I like a quote by um, Harvey Broom, who was an early wilderness advocate. He wrote that, if we lose wilderness, we lose forever knowledge of what the world was and what it might, with understanding and loving husbandry, yet become and wilderness and our protected forests, they are holdings of that wildness that we need and that is still is still an essential part of who we are as humans, I think when a society loses its wildness, it loses part of itself, just as we as humans when we when we lose wildness, we lose a part of ourselves individually. I see my role as continuing to love wild places and to stand up for them when I see injustices being done to them. Like a Wild South here, we Forest Watch is the foundation of what we do. And when we see things happening in the National Forest, you know, management of the forest by the Forest Service, that goes against the principles of restoration, then I see it as my job to say something about that and to do something about it. I feel that it is my role to introduce other people to wild places by taking them there and educating them about the plants and the geology and the animals and especially taking kids there because children need that exposure to wild places they need to they need to walk in the streams and turn over rocks and get dirty and climb on boulders and just to breathe that air they need that and the wilder the place they can get that the better and it's also my job to take the parents of children to these places so that the parents can keep on taking their children there. It needs to be unbroken lineage from one generation to the other and I believe that's part of my job to do that. About every 15 years or so the Forest Service is required to revise their management plan. So they go through a process that can take a few years of assessing, Assessing their needs, their requirements, um, what's required of them from Washington. Just a whole mix of things that, that, and then they have to come up with a new management plan. So previous to 2004, all the management plans over all those years, uh, especially from about the 1960s onward, were primarily for timber production, where thousands of acres of native trees and forests, you know, on the, mostly on the ridges, were cut down um, in order that pine, loblolly pine plantations could be planted. Their primary mandate um, was for timber production of loblolly pines. This really amped up in, um, with the 1986 revision plan. They really pushed even harder for timber production, which meant a lot more cutting down of native trees and forest, a lot more clear-cutting. And that's when that's when the protests that formed this organization really got started back in the late 1980s, when especially um, Butch Walker was really watching things and writing about what was going on locally. Butch was the main voice who really, that really started, you know, getting things heated up. Until the early 2000s, the uh, Forest Service was still under that plan, which was why there was so much contention in the 1990s, so much protest against the plan because so much destruction of the forest was happening. I mean, it was, it was terrible. It was very toxic. They were using chemicals, you know, to kill vegetation and a lot of burning and just complete destruction of the forest. It, it was really, really bad. And um, also in the late 1990s, um, the southern pine beetle got involved and, and played its role also in changing the way the forest was managed because so back to the planning for the um, the 2004 uh, revision plan by this time the early 2000's, um, let's see we were Wild Alabama and then became Wild South in 2004. We actually had a voice in that plan. We were at the table in the planning because of all the protesting and all the changes that we were demanding. So we were allowed to be at the table and be part of that planning, which was just revolutionary. It was during that time that the uh, Bankhead Liaison Panel was formed, um, which is a panel of a diverse group of stakeholders, of people and agencies who have interest in the Bankhead National Forest. And as far as I know, it's still the only one in the country. See, at this time, Wild South is on it, represented by Mark Kalinske. Backcountry Horsemen of America are on it. Loggers, Nature Conservancy, Fish and Wildlife, hunters, just individual hunters are on it. Forest Service, of course, yes. Just, uh, there's, there's probably about, probably about a dozen panel members and some of them have been on very long. I mean, we, you know, we've been on for the entire time. I think Backcountry Horsemen have probably been on for that long. Uh, so it's a, very, uh, it's a very dedicated panel, and uh, it's, been, it's been extremely beneficial. That was also part of the forest planning for this, uh, the 2000, 2004 revision. The plan that was adopted for 2004 mandated um, restoration of the forest back to native forest types and away from timber production. What that means on the ground is that all the loblolly pine plantations are being taken out and then desired future conditions are established for different places and and they're being managed for that and that's a huge change it's not perfect it's like we would still like to see more of some things and less of other things and uh, but it's so much better than it was and that's because of the the people who fought for that the people who raised the protest initially it did make a huge difference during that time you know the early 1990s late 1980s there was there was a lot of uprising in the country, especially on the west coast, against Forest Service practices and the way the forests were managed and treated. I mean, there was a lot of cutting going on. It wasn't just it wasn't just here in the Bankhead. It was happening out on the west coast in Oregon and Washington, in the in the in the the redwoods and the sequoias, and it was happening over in North Carolina, and Southern Appalachian Biodiversity Project was fighting that the same time we were. It was um, a lot going on because these districts excuse me, were being mandated to cut more wood, to produce more and to cut more. And people all over were not happy about it. I think the difference in the Bankhead warriors was that they were, they didn't go for the earth first type of tactics like a lot of these groups were. I mean, you know, they weren't spiking trees and they weren't chaining themselves to machinery. They were just real grassroots everyday people, many of Native American, mostly Cherokee descent, who just felt riled that their forest and their, their ancestral lands were being so defiled and degraded. It, just, it came just from a very um, fundamental place in people that this was wrong. Their tactics were a little different and less what we would call radical, I guess. Um, than some of these groups that were acting at the same time, but my goodness they were just as effective I mean it was like going toe to toe face to face with the forest service that takes a lot of courage so much of our so much of our environmental problems are rooted in politics and politicians and the the power that big money and corporations have in our government. It's just so important to vote and to really know who you're voting for and to vote for people who go against um, big money and government and political sway in environmentalism. I would say to young people pay attention, get out in these wild places and in the forests and the woods as often as you can and get to know it and love it. If you see something wrong or something that doesn't seem right, then speak up about it and do something. Join, a, join a, an organization or a group that's already doing something about it. Keep wildness in your heart and let that guide you. And just keep a vision of wildness in this world because we can't live without it. But mostly get outside. Get outside and love it. Vote for the lesser of the evils but never don't vote. And if there's something you don't like about the system, then work to fix it. Because it's it's our government. We are the people. We the people. It's up to us to fix it if, if it's not right. And sometimes you do have to just choose the one that's least objectionable. It's sad, but it's true. My family history, you know, with the bank head, I wanted to mention my uncle Claude, my great uncle Claude Sandlin, who was my grandmother's brother. I found out not very long ago, maybe in the last couple of years, that in his early years as a school teacher, he taught at the Pine Torch Church. I don't think I mentioned when I started working for Wild Alabama. Because when I was, I volunteered for many years, you know, from about 1991. And then when I moved back to Alabama, I was hired. I think in 2002. So I got on the staff of Wild Alabama in about 2002. So watch out what you volunteer for. (laughs) It could become your job. (laughs) I'm a painter. I see using my art as a way of helping to bring awareness to wild places and as a way of, of saving wild places as an as a language and a way of talking about the wild places. I love to um, take my backpack full of oil painting supplies into the Sipsi wilderness of the Bankhead National Forest and just sit on a creek bank and paint. And this is a way that I have of having a relationship with that place. I feel that my art and and painting on-site, plain air, out in the wild places that I love probably has helped deepen my relationship with those places more than anything else. I would say to young people, or to anyone, who who wants to uh, get to know their wild places better or work to save their wild places, our wild places, is to bring your own personal passions and talents into it. You can sit on a creek bank and play your flute. You can paint. You can write poetry, write stories, tell stories. I think people telling their stories is extremely powerful. When we use our art, it helps to convey our knowledge, and our relationship with places to others. It brings awareness. It brings awareness into the world.
0: To learn more about this episode and to see Janice Barrett's paintings from the Bankhead National Forest and the Sipsi Wilderness of North Alabama, go to greenbucketpress.com backslash present-tense-podcast. If you're just tuning in, there are 12 interviews that make up the series The Fight for Alabama's Last Wild Places, and you can listen to each and every one on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. While you're there, remember to follow us, subscribe, rate us, and leave us a review. Next week, on July 29th, tune in to hear our final episode. Thanks to cellist Craig Haltgren for our theme music. Thanks to Farron Weeks and the White Horse Singers for our episode music. Thanks to Janice Barrett and Wild South for their collaboration with Present Tense on the interviews in this series. These interviews form an audio archive of the Bankhead movement for Wild South. You can donate to Present Tense so that we can continue this work without relying upon advertisers. And please learn more about Wild South at wildsouth.org. And remember, let's all stand up for our last wild places. Until next time.